Dr. Vincent Lamb was born in London, Ontario and grew up in Ottawa. His family is from the expatriate Chinese community of Vietnam. He trained in Toronto. He's an emergency physician and a lecturer at the University of Toronto. He has done international air evacuation work and expedition medicine on Arctic and Antarctic ships. His first book, Bloodletting and Miraculous Cures, won the 2006 Scotia Giller Prize. Dr. Lamb is co-author of The Flu Epidemic and You, which received an award from the American Medical Writers Association in 2007. He and his family live in Toronto, and he has recently written Tommy Douglas as part of the Penguin Extraordinary Canadians series. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you for having me. There's an almost angelic-looking depiction of Tommy Douglas on the front cover of the book, which belies his toughness. Yes. Well, he had the heart of an angel, but he lived on Earth, and so he understood that if you want to get things done, no matter how humanistic and no matter how noble, well, you might have to fight for them, and that was part of what he did. He was, in fact, quite the boxer. Yes, he held the Manitoba Lightweight Championship for two consecutive years in his youth. His parents disapproved of his boxing, by the way, uh, and gave him no sympathy when he came home and was hurt. But that was part of his character, I think. Certainly he could put up a good fight politically as well. What drew him to the church? Well, I think that in the time in which he grew up, and he grew up in the prairies in the teens and the twenties, the people whom he saw around him, which provided the best example of what today we would call social activism and progressive thinking, were largely church people. During the Depression, if you went to small towns and tried to figure out, okay, so who's running the charities and who's trying to help people get through the Depression, it was largely church people. Those are the people who were the examples for him as humanists of a practical bent. You know, being drawn to that kind of activity, he was naturally drawn to the church. His parents were religious as well, though each in their own way. His father was quietly religious and wasn't a big fan of organized religion. Preferred to stay at home than to go to church, but he read the Bible. And his mother was, was very much a social activist and was involved in the famous mission of J.S. Woodsworth, the All Saints mission in Winnipeg. Which is where he grew up, the multicultural stew. That's right. Winnipeg then was the most multicultural city in Canada. That's where Tommy Douglas learned about Canada. And there's a lovely story. He was hurt, and a Ukrainian and a, and a Pole young friends agreed to drag right. him off to school in a, in a sled. That's right. They showed up and, and hauled him off to school when he was suffering from osteomyelitis. And, of course, I mean, Tommy was born in Scotland, so his starting point of view of the world was that, well, you know, I, I come from a place where everyone speaks the same language and looks at the world the same way. So when he arrived in Canada, clearly the differences must have been striking. He suddenly found himself young boy in Winnipeg where there were people, yes, from Scotland and from the United Kingdom, but also from Eastern Europe, from Asia. This was part of his formative environment, a multicultural environment. And there perhaps wasn't quite the class structure that was at play in Scotland, although there was still the rich and the poor in, in Canada. Yes, very much so. Certainly at the time, the prairies can be looked at as, some would have called it almost a neo-colonial region in that people were brought to Canada, sent out there to farm, and then people in Toronto and Montreal made good money off them with yeah. the railways and tariffs and, and shipping out consumer goods at, at high prices. So there were definitely exploitation issues. 
but in the environment that Tommy, in his immediate surroundings, he would have seen lots of people from all over the world, in a new country, trying to make a living. And that would have been different than the immediate surroundings that he would have seen as a boy in Scotland, where things were much more stratified. Winnipeg and Manitoba was wide open. It was a country being transformed, whereas where he came from in Scotland, well, you know, he might want to run around in those fields, but he might discover that he couldn't because they were fenced off, and those were the hunting grounds yes. of the landed gentry, right? So, in yeah. fact, during the First World War, his family went back to Scotland. His father felt an obligation to be involved in the conflict, didn't want to fight, so he became an ambulance stretcher-bearer. After the war, his father was very independent. That's one of the things that he saw. He said, well, you know what, I'd rather go back to Canada where it's a bit more open, there's less of this class structure. And they came to Canada for the second time. And then Tommy, prior to deciding that he wanted to be a pastor, a common theme throughout his life is that he sees or reads the Word of God, but he wants to put it into practical use. Yes, absolutely. You know, much of his childhood was concerned with just surviving. His family was a poor working class family. The second time they came to Canada, his father was still in the army in Europe, wasn't yet discharged, and they were waiting for him. Tommy took odd jobs, messenger boy, messenger boy yeah. whatever he could find. Later he went into an apprenticeship as a printer. He made pretty good money doing that too, he didn't he? He made pretty good money. Think of Benjamin Franklin. Yeah. yeah. So on one hand, like many people from a working class background, a lot of his early years were really just occupied with making ends meet. Of course, he was reading voraciously, he was a very intellectually curious person, but he had to bring in some money to help his mother pay the bills. So it, it was really only once, you know, once his family was a little bit more settled and he was able to think about what he wanted to do with his life that he was drawn towards the ministry. But he had already been steeped in this ethos of uh, reformist Christianity, democratic socialism, and of what he would call a humanism later in his life, more than to say that it was specifically Christian. Although he was a Christian and he was a Baptist minister, he was an inclusive person. He came to the ministry with this particular mix of experiences, drawn to it through this very practical period of his life, where he understood that you know it was fine to have big ideas. If you couldn't pay the rent and put food on the table, life wasn't going to be so comfortable. And he always remembered that and understood that when he thought about what kinds of policies would be good for Canadians. Well, in fact, that comes up, skipping ahead a bit here, but he at one point decides he wants to pursue a PhD in Chicago, and he gets a bit tired of all of this theory. He was really wanting to do something that would make a difference. That's right. He met philosophers and Marxists and communists, and it should be made clear that he always firmly situated himself as not being a communist, but he certainly met those people and thought, look, I want to do practical work. And he found that a lot of those people were in the world of the theoretical. They like wouldn't be did. able to figure out how to feed a bunch of hungry people, but they knew a lot about political theory, and that wasn't, that wasn't Tommy at all. He wanted to figure out how to feed people. Well, at one point he takes in 11 young boys. Well, he took charge of these people, so he took responsibility. <laughs> you know, someone, in a sense, kind of played Tommy. They knew his good nature, and so... The local judge said, well, you know, I'm going to have to sentence these 
kids, and you know I'm gonna have to send them off to basically a, you know a working jail, the industrial school. And why don't you come and see what's gonna happen? And so <laughs> Tommy was put in this position where he found himself taking custody of these kids. I mean, my understanding of the situation is that he, he sort of took charge of them, took responsibility for them. I don't know exactly over what time period that lasted, but they were, it should be said, you know, kids from the community. So one can suppose that they also had parents and, and other people, although those may have been troublesome or dysfunctional situations. So they, what, they used his house as a... Resource center. I see, church yes. and the, okay. He later ran into, into some of them, you know, later in life over the years and, and found that many of them had straightened up and done okay. So it was not wasted effort at all. Just want to read this little passage here. It's on page 41, 42. Uh, he, he became a, a pastor and he lived through and witnessed the horror of the depression on the prairies. So Douglas asked questions about the economic crisis of the 30s that seem as relevant today as they did in his time. Why did the society break down? What was wrong with it? Why was it that when you had a surplus of food and clothing at almost every known commodity produced by an advanced technological society, there were people who couldn't get decent houses to live in, couldn't get clothing to wear, and who couldn't get enough to eat. What had broken down? It seems like when you really think about that, the whole idea of government is to redistribute wealth. That's definitely part of the role of government, to redistribute wealth in the sense that it's no good to anybody if a very small number of people have way more stuff than they need. Right, while a whole bunch of people don't have enough, you know that's that's actually no good for people on either end of the spectrum. No one's happier for that, you know. So I think part of the role of government is to address that kind of inequity. And Do you think that's what really drove him? I think that that was a huge part of it. That he believed that the ultimate consequence of unrestricted capitalism was a very ugly sort of society. Now, a distinction needs to be made. I mean, he believed in free enterprise. He believed that if you want to go out and find an opportunity and build a business and be successful, then you should have the freedom to do so. But he also believed that no one should lack the freedom to pursue that opportunity mm -hmm. or to pursue an education or simply to be able to find good housing and decent support for their family by virtue of being born without wealth, by virtue of an unfair capitalist society. And he believed that both things were possible. You could have a society in which people could go out and find opportunities and create businesses, and that could exist within societies that also looked after their vulnerable, that took care of people when they were sick, that made sure that you didn't have people in society whom, as you point out, we're lacking for basic sustenance in a society in which there's more than enough to go around. That injustice or the sense of exploitation, these are obviously buzzwords for him. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I think these are relevant issues today. Uh, so just last night witnessed the debates, the English debates. Yes. And again, it's a question of allocating resources. Do you buy $30 billion worth of fighter aircraft? Yeah. Where do you put your resources? Yeah. I think those are they're very relevant questions. And we're we're a bit complacent, I think, as Canadians, because the truth of the matter is we we actually have a very socialist state uh, in some respects, and much of that is frankly a direct legacy 
of what the CCF and the NDP accomplished. In minority government situations. In minority government situations, yes. that's right. You know, many of the things which are just core politics in Canada, you know, things that you can't touch because to touch them would be political suicide, things like universal health care, old age pensions, you know, those were CCF and NDP innovations. Mm -hmm. The things right? that we define ourselves by. Absolutely, we define ourselves through these. So, you know, I, I think one of the great ironies is that because we enjoy these systems as Canadians, we're sometimes very quick to forget what they represent. We're very quick to forget that, well, they do represent elements of a just society. They do represent, uh, in some respects, redistribution of wealth, right? And they do represent certain aspects of socialism. And it's in forgetting those things that we become very vulnerable to politicians who would seek to knock them down. If we don't know what we have, then it makes us, I think, a little bit quicker to say, oh, well, you know, I guess you're right. You know, maybe we, maybe we don't need to spend so much money on that. Maybe we can spend it on something else like fighter jets. You know, and it's by, by failing to appreciate both the, the degree of benefit and the underlying nature of some of these programs that those things themselves are vulnerable. It's interesting, just to, again, I'm jumping around a bit, but the uh, the Regina Manifesto, that's such an important cornerstone of the sure. NDP's politics and policies over, over the years, that's one area that may not have been fulfilled to the extent that the others have, and that is to advocate strongly for peace. Yes. I mean, that's, we're seen and perceived as a peacemaker, and yet, how are we spending our money? It's true, and the Regina Manifesto uh, certainly did have a worldview which wished for Canada to promote peace. On one hand, I think Canadians have a self-image that that's what we do, yeah. and I think historically that's often what we have done. I'm not sure that that's what we're doing now, and I'm not sure that the rest of the world views us that way anymore. Let's move then from the clergy, uh, from one pulpit to another. There's a lovely little story, an anecdote that you provide that sort of shows us how the clergy pushes Douglas into politics. Yes, yes. What happened was that he, he ran a provincial election uh, in the 30s and lost. And, you know, he wasn't heartbroken. He, he liked being a minister. He was going to continue being a minister, maybe pursue his PhD again. These were the thoughts he had. And then a federal election came along, and the local CCF supporters wanted him to run. They didn't really see anyone else around who could run. And at that time, a lot of people were concerned if they ran, they would lose their jobs, right? Mm -hmm. So they went to Tommy. Tommy wasn't really sure he wanted to do it. Finally, the superintendent of the church came to pay a visit and said, well, if you run, then... I'll make sure you don't get another church. I.e., you know, if, if you run, you're out of a job. A threat. A threat. And that made Tommy's decision. He yeah. said, oh, well. <laughs> and his words were, well, in that case, you've just given the CCF a candidate. <laughs> so, again, it's what? What is that? He doesn't like being told what to do, for one thing. But I suppose it's, a, it's also, again, a sort of a different view on Christianity. Absolutely. I mean, he was never more uh, vexed than he was by Christians who didn't think that what they were doing on earth needed to be directly linked to what they believed spiritually. Because as far as he was concerned, that was the litmus test. 
you know, it was fine to talk about the kingdom of God and forgiveness and mercy, but it didn't mean much as far as he was concerned unless one worked for mercy, justice, humanity on earth. And he was completely forthright in calling out people who were, quote, men of God, who did not take this notion of earthly action seriously. And it wasn't as if he was trying to thrust the, the Christian doctrine down anyone's throat, I suppose, because of his origins in, in this multicultural, multi-religious setting. He condemned anti-Semitism, for example. Yes, very early in the yeah. 30s, when there were anti-Semitic editorials in this, this newspaper in the town where he worked, he was very clear to condemn that from the pulpit, and there were a few local Jewish families, and he invited them to attend the church so he could preach about Judaism with them in attendance and promote understanding. It's interesting, actually, later, his daughter Joan converted to Judaism and moved to Israel. So I got in touch with her and asked her about it, and she explained to me that when, when she wanted to convert to Judaism, Tommy went out and, and found a rabbi for her, because he knew many rabbis, mm -hmm. and he was in very good terms with people. Interestingly, during the flag debate in the 60s, there was some suggestion of having St. George's Cross on our flag, and Tommy spoke very clearly and forcefully against it. And he said, first of all, the Christian symbol has been used in all sorts of bad ways. And he points out the history of the Crusades, and that's where you know St. George's Cross was first used. And then he goes on to say in the same speech, you know, furthermore, this country is full of lots of people, Buddhists, Muslims, who are not Christian. And so it just doesn't make sense to have St. George's Cross on our flag. So, I mean, here was a guy who, yes, he was a Baptist minister, but he was an open-minded, tolerant person. He was, but you, you raised the point. It's fairly early on, I think, in his career. It's his master's thesis. Yes. Where he condemns women who get pregnant and have children out of wedlock. So it, it's not that he isn't judgmental and perhaps not quite as tolerant as you might suggest. Well, there's a few things to say. I mean, first of all, that master's thesis was clearly a thesis that would have promoted eugenics. That's right. It was advocating sterilization of mentally disturbed. People who were not sort of fit to take responsibility for reproduction in the view of society as it prevailed at the time. So, you know, a few things should be said. And I think the first thing is that Tommy, I'm sure, would have been uh, deeply embarrassed if he was asked about it right now. And he would have said, look, I was completely wrong. He certainly demonstrated that to be the case because once he was in power in the 40s, a couple of similar proposals actually came across his desk. I mean, this thesis was written before the Second World War, before everyone saw the horrors of Nazism and, and the ultimate sort of conclusion of this terribly misguided thinking. Tommy came to power after the Second World War, and when a couple of eugenics proposals came across his desk, he completely rejected them. It should also be said that, you know, at the time that this thesis was written, this completely misguided thesis. Unfortunately, that kind of thinking was yeah. very much in the current of the time. Yeah. And various jurisdictions throughout North America, in Canada as well as the U.S., were practicing enforced sterilizations. And so were effectively practicing eugenics. So, you know, while it seemed very shocking to us, you know, I think that we do have to understand that these are, these are values which Tommy did not espouse when he actually held power. In fact, quite the opposite. They were part of the mainstream academic discussion when he wrote this thesis. I'm sure that he uh, 
you would be deeply embarrassed to have done so and say, look, I mean, that was a, that was a terrible mistake to have written. Foolish used. You know, here was a guy in, in his 20s writing a master's yeah. thesis. You know, if you took me or you or anyone else to task for everything that we did in our 20s, <laughs> you know, yes. no one would be able to, to yeah. stand up in polite society. So that's, that's the kind of thing that it was. I'm speaking with Vincent Lamb, who is the author, among other books, fiction, non-fiction, of Tommy Douglas, part of the Extraordinary Canadians Penguins series. Perhaps we could talk about him being in power. He became the premier of Saskatchewan in 1945. Yeah. A pretty good time to come into power sure. economically. Maybe you could talk a bit about what he did in Saskatchewan. Well, uh, he basically inherited a bankrupt province. Having said that, he did come to Saskatchewan at a good time. The Second World War was ending. There was a sense of optimism in Canada. And though no one could have known it, we were just on the cusp of a great boom era in North America. So what did he do in Saskatchewan? This is a challenge, right, to boil down 70 years of continuous, continuous government by the CCF, provincially in Saskatchewan. With Tommy Douglas at the helm? Correct. Mm. 17 years for that government, from 45 until 62. Mind you, Tommy left in 61 in order to lead the federal NDP. So it was the government that he had, that he had, I mean, the last year, I mean, he had put that government in place and, and been the leader of the party when that election was won. But Woodrow Lloyd took over the premiership for the last year when Tommy went to head the NDP. You know, so, so I think, I mean, in broad strokes, what he did was he inherited a bankrupt province and he did a couple of things. He tried to be fair and he tried to make plans. So certainly the civil service and the government of the time preceding him should have and would have clearly been, been called a patronage system. It was well known that the Department of Road Works was a patronage department where they gave out money to people. They cleaned out the files of the entire place, so he arrived at an empty office because the preceding government took everything, didn't want it to be seen, and took it all away. So he reformed the civil service. That was the part of the fair part of it. And then he tried to make plans. So they identified priorities. You know, these were very nuts and bolts people who, who understood money. They were frugal. They wanted to implement policies that were fair, but that would work. Absolutely. A small example, he wanted three new cabinet ministers, and cabinet ministers earned a little bit more than MPPs. Seven instead of 5,000, right? Yeah. So yeah. he said, well, we're going to have three new cabinet ministers, and everyone's going to take a pay cut. So we're not spending any more money on cabinet ministers, we're just getting three more cabinet ministers. He invites a famous American public health expert, cigarist, up to consult on the healthcare system in Saskatchewan. And he says, look, I'm not going to pay you. I'm going to pay your expenses. But we're doing a great thing up here. We've got a, a democratic socialist government. You should just come and advise us. And the guy said yes. This is the frugal aspect of it. But the planning aspect of it was actually extremely important because it was very, very important for that government to open up Saskatchewan to industry and to resource development. They were nearly bankrupt. It was questionable whether they would be able to issue bonds and a lot of people were scaremongering too, saying, you know, they're going sure, to take they're over gonna everything. Sure, they're going to default on the bond and collectivize property, and all of which was, was complete fiction. I mean, that was never in the agenda. They were never going to seize property or 
collectivize things. So it was dubious whether they could go to the bond market in the same way that, that most governments could. So they really had to be very, very careful to plan for economic development, to invite investors, to make it clear to investors that there was predictable rule of law in Saskatchewan, uh, and they did so. And so, you know, it's with those revenues that they were able to fund social programs. And again, they planned and they introduced things incrementally. We know now that they, they introduced universal health care, but it was a stepwise approach where they began in the early years by providing care for the most vulnerable people and progressed and progressed until they introduced full hospital insurance. And then several years after that, were able to take the big step of universal health care. All of this running surpluses each year. That's right. Balanced budget yeah. every year, often surpluses, paid down debt. When we think of a socialist government, it's not the first thing that comes to mind, but the first socialist government in North America, Tommy Douglas' government, had balanced budgets and paid down debt for 17 years straight. And this was all predicated upon a mix of fairness and planning. It's, it's mother and apple pie stuff, but they elevated those principles to an art. I mean, that's really why they were so successful. One of the things about Saskatchewan uh, over the, those years, they developed one of the world-class civil services. Yes, they did a number of things in, in civil service. First of all, they were intolerant of patronage and corruption. Secondly, they hired people not purely on a partisan basis. So they hired liberals, mm. they hired conservatives. On their merit. Once Tommy Douglas stepped up to the, the federal level, there was, a, there was a lot of Saskatchewan bureaucrats that came to Ottawa. They were known as the, the Saskatchewan Mafia or something That's right. Such. I mean, many of the civil servants who were incredibly influential in Trudeau's government, people like uh, Tommy Shoyama, people like Al Johnson, people like uh, Art Wakabayashi, were Tommy Douglas protégés. They were people who went to work for the government of the CCF in Saskatchewan when they were young men, and developed a reputation as being a fine, fine, effective cadre of civil servants. And Too bad they didn't bring Douglas's frugality to the Trudeau administration, though. I mean, civil servants at the end of the day are servants, servants of their political masters. And, okay. uh, and what can you do? But it should also be said that you know people like Tomishiyama, Art Wakabayashi, were Japanese Canadians whom Tommy Douglas hired when no one in the country was hiring Japanese Canadians. He protested the internments. Yes, yes, he did. That's one of the shameful episodes of our country's history. You know, and, and we forget that that discrimination lasted after the Second World War. But Tommy was hiring, and hiring people on the basis of merit. He was remarkably colorblind for his time. I mean, we take that to be an assumption, that everyone should be colorblind, and maybe some people are less so or more so. But at that time, that, that was not even a concept. Uh, so he was unusual in that respect. He was also a great orator. Just let's get back to the way that the CCF NDP were able to work the system so that their agenda became national policy. In minority government situations, I assume that you would say that a minority situation isn't quite the problem that Mr. Harper might suggest. Well, to give historical context, the sequence of events in the late 50s and the early 60s was that uh, the Liberals, who had held power for years, lost power to the Conservatives in a surprise turn of events and were really feeling the heat. 
the CCF, which became the NDP, were very popular. The Liberals understood the appeal of those policies and made a deliberate shift, notably at the Kingston conference, towards many of these CCF slash NDP policies, including things like universal health care. So it would have been toward the end of the Diefenbaker regime? Yes. You know, even outside of an election, basically, the threat, as it were, of NDP popularity was enough to shift dialogue towards the left. Well, and you, then you, you make a point of showing how their popularity goes from about, what, 10% of the population up to 29%. Yes, late in the Second World War, they actually, at one point, had the highest popularity rating. They were called the CCF at that point. So that's kind of the, the political influence outside of Parliament, as it were. But then certainly they, they held the balance of power in several governments and were able to influence the agenda in Parliament as a result. Now, to your observation about current politics, yes, you're right. I mean, Stephen Harper seems to make the suggestion that minority parliament is not working. Well, to look at previous parliaments, one would conclude that that's not necessarily the history of minority governments in Canada. And ironically, they, in fact, played an important role in defining exactly who we are. Absolutely. The introduction of old age pensions, this goes back to the 20s, but let's say the late 20s, was during a situation in which two MPs, who were then the Labour MPs, which later became the CCF, which became the NDP, held a balance of power, and they basically used that to bring about the creation of old age pensions in Canada. So, I mean, the history of our parliamentary system is actually a history in which lots of good things get done in minority parliaments, but what you need is you need people who can talk to each other. Instead of bickering. Yeah, I thought that Mr. Ignatieff's point in that debate that this is not bickering, this is democracy. That's supposed to be the way things work. So we've established that minority governments aren't necessarily a bad thing, quite the opposite. Just in closing then, I wonder if you could, first of all, talk about how your take on Tommy Douglas might differ from how traditionally we've seen him, based on your research, but also your own personal experience. Sure. From a personal point of view, I'm very invested in the notion of universal health care. As a practicing physician, I see every day the importance of that being the underlying principle of our system. You know, I see so many ways in which it makes it both work better and makes it more humane and more fair. So I think in terms of that aspect of Tommy's legacy, I have a great amount of professional affiliation. So that's a particular thing. Yeah, um, just, sorry, just to interrupt, but the, you, you tell the story of how Tommy had a leg injury and that, that if it wasn't for the intervention of a doctor who said, I'll take this case on and I won't charge you anything, it really wasn't for him. He, he may have been in a lot more difficult That's right. situation. The suggestion at the time was that Tommy, and he was a young boy at the time, should have his leg amputated. And yeah. so he would have been an amputee had it not been for the charity of an orthopedic surgeon who took pity on him. Obviously a life-changing experience. Yeah. No uh, one should be reliant upon charity. Absolutely. That it should yeah. simply be a person's claim upon society. If they need medical services, that society collectively should choose to provide what was needed. And I think this is a very reasonable expectation of any society, and certainly a wealthy society like ours. 
you know, so that's a concept that I feel very strongly about, both as a Canadian and as a practicing physician who wants to be able to deliver services to people based on their needs and based on the medical uh, appropriateness of certain services and not based on whether people have X amount of money in their bank accounts. So that's something I feel very strongly about. The other thing, if you're asking about particular takes on Tommy, I guess the other thing that I, that I really find very interesting is the extent to which he brought together qualities which we sometimes don't think of as naturally residing in one particular person. That's not because they can't, it's just because we don't think of them that way. For instance, we don't usually think of a preacher as being a championship boxer. It's just not the first thing that comes to mind. Although um, you do think of these old Hollywood movies where the Irish priest is right in there right, with right. the boxer. <laughs> okay. Uh, we don't typically think of uh, people on the left of politics as being the most fiscally responsible people within a political spectrum. So these are things which I think are eminently possible. Someone can have humanistic ideals and be a fighter for what they believe in. That is totally possible. And people can believe that economy and the prosperity of the economy should serve humane social goals while also being very fiscally responsible and very frugal and very careful with public money. I mean, these things, as it turns out, Tommy proves to be totally possible, but they're just not what we think of immediately. And so I think that, that it probably shows us that we need to have a little bit more imagination in asking what is possible for us as people and for us as a country. And we don't have to resort to these kinds of simplistic shorthands you know, in which we think, oh, well, people on the right side of politics are pro-business, not necessarily so great at social services, but fiscally responsible. And we think, oh, you know, people on the, on the left, well, they're nice people, but they're not really such tough-minded people, and we want tough-minded people to get the job done, and we're not really sure if they can manage money either. Right? That's our lazy shorthand. The unfortunate thing, though, is when Bob Ray got into power in, in Ontario, there was a bit of a problem that it may have been, again, just timing. Tommy Douglas got in at the end of the Second World War. Sure. To look at our current government in Canada, it's hard, really to say that the Conservative government has been at the helm of a vigorous economic recovery when it was Liberal governments that paid down debt prior to the Conservative governments. The We've Conservative government brought in the GST which enabled and free Fair trade, enough. so Fair enough. it spread the accolades around. Fair enough. I think more importantly, when we have just been lucky enough, like Australia, for instance, to be a resource country in the midst of a vigorous resource boom. And, and I think if, if you had to delay the credit for our weathering the economic storm well, it's not with any particular politician. It's just the fact that we're a resource exporting country in a time when resource prices are very high. Good fortune. It's good fortune. So I think more importantly than taking credit or laying blame for any of those things, is the question, well, where are we going from here? And I think that takes a certain amount of imagination and a certain amount of courage and a certain blending of qualities, perhaps, that we don't always think of as being all residing in the same person or the same position. Tommy Douglas showed that it, it could be. That's right. That's one of his legacies. He shows us that you can be very idealistic and you can be very practical 
and that can be a powerful combination. Let's just end up, it's actually the, the very first quote in the book. It quotes Tommy Douglas from A.W. Johnson's Dream, No Little Dream, a, a biography of the Douglas government of Saskatchewan, 1944 to 1961. I wonder if I could get you just to read sure, that. Sure, absolutely. I love this quote. We should never, never be afraid or ashamed about dreams. The dreams won't all come true. We won't always make it. But where there is no vision, a people perish. Where people have no dreams and no hopes and aspirations, life becomes dull and a meaningless wilderness. Thanks very much. Thank you. I've been speaking with Vincent Lamb, the author of Tommy Douglas, part of the extraordinary Canadian series published by Penguin Canada, out of the press. Thanks very much again. Well, thank you for having me on your show.